0: Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks, I'm your host Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy, who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the opportunity to live outside the US for a number of years, which, I think, puts me in a good position to comment, for my American audience, on some events of note going on outside the country and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience, just what the hell's going on in American politics. So, I've not done an episode in a little while. In the time leading up to the election, I was swamped with work related to it, and in the time after, well, there have been a number of things that I wanted to respond to, but none that has felt like one that I should try and build a coherent episode around. I've been tempted to start the, I think, much-needed autopsy of the Democrats' pretty serious underperformance in the Senate, House, and state legislature races, but I've wanted to stay out of the internecine fight at least until the Georgia Senate races had finished. And then on the very day we got the news that the Democrats have in fact pulled two rabbits out of the hat in the form of stunning victories in Georgia, thank you Stacey Abrams, to take the Senate, we got the news that a mob of deranged Trump supporters egged on by their dear leader had physically stormed into the U.S. Capitol building, And I could no longer keep my mouth shut, so here I am. In this episode, I'm planning to talk about some of the domestic political angles of the events of January 6th, some of the really recent and slightly less recent history, and some of the implications. I also wanted to get a sense for how these events are landing outside the country. To get an anecdotal picture of how the attack on the Capitol is being perceived, I have reached out to a number of friends in other countries to get their initial gut reaction to seeing this happen in America, and I'll be sharing some of the audio of their responses as part of the episode. So what happened? On November 3rd, 2020, Joe Biden received the most votes of any presidential candidate in history and beat Donald Trump. And despite it initially feeling like it was going to be a nail biter, that red mirage effect I discussed two episodes ago is apparently a whole lot scarier in real time than it is in theory. It wasn't actually very close. But, due to Donald Trump's dual problems of having a broken brain and being surrounded by sycophants, he has come to believe that he, in fact, actually won, uh, bigly and strongly. And this is all just one more cruel joke from a universe that has been singularly unfair to poor, unlucky Donald Trump, who can't catch a break and is, in fact, the most strongly, unfairly maligned victim in the human history of time, maybe ever, folks, believe me. So, naturally, he spent the time since the election ginning up an increasingly radicalized group of supporters and trying to overturn the results of the election and throw sand into the gears at every step of the process of certifying it. This has included everything from firing off a torrent of absurd lawsuits, which have all been laughed out of court, trying to pressure state legislatures to vote to send different electors to the electoral college, and making threatening mafia-style phone calls to election officials in swing states like Georgia. January 6th was about the last, up until now pro forma, step in what I think we're starting to realize is a painfully slow election certification process in which Congress officially counts the electoral votes and it's over. Never one to allow trifles like law, norms, the Constitution, decency, math, to get in the way of his ravenous id, naturally, Trump spent the time leading up to the 6th, tweeting deranged conspiracy theories and calling on supporters to protest on the Capitol. Be there. We'll be wild. He also pressured the vice president and Republican members of Congress to gum up the works. Some of those Republican representatives and senators were, of course, eager to debase themselves further in service to the dear leader. The vice president, uh, since he officially has no power to actually do so, didn't. Then, on January 6th, Trump held a rally with a throng of supporters in which he and Rudy Giuliani all but told people to go attack the Capitol, which they then did. The Capitol Police totally failed to stop Trump supporters from storming into the building that houses America's Congress, and Trump's leadership at the Pentagon, which controls the National Guard in D.C. due to the unique and, frankly, unfair status of the district, sat on their hands for hours, to the point where the governors of the neighboring states of Maryland and Virginia were about to deploy their own National Guard units to restore order. All the while, rioters, some armed, roamed the halls of American democracy, freely stealing and destroying property. It's worth noting, as many have, from media figures to the president-elect, that there appears to have been a slight difference in the aggressiveness, with which federal law enforcement responded to peaceful racial justice protesters in D.C. this past summer, especially in their fairly brutal clearing of Lafayette Square, versus how they've handled this attempted putsch by vanilla ISIS, or Al-Waida. I'm still working on the terrorist group name wordplay. I'm open to suggestions. Now, Trump has massively exacerbated the radicalization of the far right, but he definitely doesn't deserve all the blame. It began well before he waddled into the political arena. As some former Republican political strategists have admitted and described, the party to a varying degree has for a long time basically made a devil's bargain with some dark forces in American politics. They gently threw winks and dog whistles to maintain respectability, signal sympathy and encouragement to the extreme right, by which I mean militia types, violent anti-abortion activists, white nationalists, other wackos, and sometimes give them political cover. I talked about this problem in a previous podcast episode called Why Does America Treat Right-Wing and Left-Wing Protesters So Differently, where I get into how Republican politicians and the conservative media eagerly backed Cliven Bundy's cow pasture putsch a few years ago until he said something stupid on camera cranks on the extreme right have found a real champion like they've never had before in Donald Trump. But Republican politicians have at times found the radical right a convenient way to frustrate Democratic politicians, particularly Obama. I'll leave it to others to speculate about exactly what was different about President Obama that the extreme right found so objectionable. The Republican Party and the conservative movement deserve blame for fueling this radicalism. It's worth noting that even after the attack on the Capitol by al shabili Bob, some Republican members of Congress continue to spread the insane conspiracy theories and propaganda that created this recent wave of radicalism in the first place. Some of the Republican senators challenging the results of the election displayed the modicum of decency required to behave like adults for five minutes after the attack and drop their objections to the previously pro forma election certification process or simply had just been voted out of office and thus didn't need to bother catering to the base anymore, as in the case of Kelly Loeffler. Leffler. Loeffler? Whatever, doesn't matter, she lost. But other traitors to democracy, like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who clearly believe that their best shot at getting elected president in 2024 is to wreck the electoral system, have continued to facilitate this radicalization. Hey, everybody. Before we continue with the episode, I just wanted to take a second to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling really charitable, to share it with some other people you think might like it. That way you won't miss an episode. And as the show is just getting off the ground, it's really helpful for getting the word out to other potential listeners. Thanks. Okay, now back to the disaster that is American politics. To summarize... The actions of Cruz, Hawley, and others like them, Republican politicians and media figures alike, have had a terrible impact. As I've said in previous episodes, there is now a not insubstantial number of people on the right who are so blinded by either loyalty to the person of Donald Trump, or fear and hatred of some supposed radical left menace that Fox has spent the last 20 years telling them is about to come for you, your family, and all you hold dear, that they believe democracy is not a means to mediate political disputes, but rather an obstacle to be done away with. That includes the large group of anti-democracy morons in the House and Senate who just tried to overturn the will of a 7 million vote majority of Americans in the presidential election, the Sedition Caucus, if you will, and a large number of heavily armed average people, some of whom we just saw storm into the Capitol building. This armed right-wing insurgency, represents a clear and present threat to the stability of the United States. In the past, apparently, it's been calculated that it was okay to ignore the relatively small group of heavily armed lunatics as long as they mostly stuck to stocking their bunkers with canned goods, even if it did result in the occasional standoff over cattle grazing fees. But even before we were all treated to images of some jackass with his muddy boots on Nancy Pelosi's desk while his co-conspirators ripped down the Stars and Stripes and replaced it with a Trump flag, it should have been clear that ignoring this threat is just not going to work anymore. There is a straight line, from heavily armed rioters storming into state capitals last spring to protest anti-COVID measures, to the foiled plot to kidnap and execute the governors of Michigan and Virginia, to what happened on January 6th. We have a straight-up insurgency on our hands, and we have to treat it as the grave national security threat that it is. And before that, insurgency's enablers in the House GOP caucus and right-wing media respond with, But Antifa, no, there is no comparable threat from, say, violent communist insurgents on the extreme left. And as obnoxious as self-righteous PC police types on Twitter can sometimes be, they're not quite as threatening to society as armed insurrectionists. And again, the double standard in how resistance of any sort from right-wingers versus left-wingers is handled is not subtle. Again, if you haven't, please go listen to that earlier episode called Why Does America Treat Right-Wing and Left-Wing Protesters So Differently, where I go further into the history of this. But bottom line, we've all seen the comparative images of heavily armed federal forces violently dispersing peaceful liberal protesters over the summer, versus overwhelmed Capitol Police allowing Jabhat al-Trumpra to storm the Capitol virtually unopposed. This is a problem. In addition to the domestic impact of all this, we have to think about what this does to the rest of the world. Now, I could devote an entire episode, and have already discussed at length in previous podcasts and a couple of written pieces, the negative impact of the Trump administration just up until now on America's role in the world, and the severe implications that has for liberal Western values, human rights, democracy, other such trifles. But the image of some shirtless, face-painted, horn-wearing ass-clown dancing around behind the speaker's lectern after storming into the U.S. Capitol building, probably the single most famous symbol of democracy in the world, is, well, that one's not going to fade. At the governmental level, there are reports that some NATO allies privately consider this to have been an attempted coup by Donald Trump. At a more personal level, I wanted to get a more anecdotal feel for how this looks to average people. So I reached out to a number of friends in other countries and asked them to share with us their initial gut reaction to all this and how it makes them feel about the US. I was in a total state of shock as I was watching events unfold on TV. That's Jerry from the Philippines, who longtime listeners may remember as my guest in the first episode of OK Talks. So many of the stuff that I was seeing were totally unbelievable, from the behavior of the rioters to the totally inadequate security. Before all this, I used to think stuff like that could only happen in the movies, in the real world, like maybe in some developing country, definitely not in the United States. Bertha from Spain was similarly shocked by the events. It's very scary that your country, which I thought it was, like, you know, a liberal country with, with smart people and, and freedom speech. I, it was like, okay, this, all these people are doing this right now and in this building. It's like no boundaries, no respect for anything. Christian from Ecuador agrees and takes an analytical view of the forces that have driven Trump and his most rabid supporters. This is truly something that took us by surprise because we didn't think we could see something like this in a country that has maintained a tradition of having a fairly organized democratic system. I think that the attack on the Capitol of the Congress of the United States is the consequence of a reaction that's been fomented these last four years by a government, or really a leader, who is a populist, conservative, authoritarian. Since he became president, Trump governed with policies that are consciously racist, discriminatory, and nationalistic, that, along with that populism have undermined democracy in America. That's what we can see in the assault on the Capitol. Danny from Brazil agrees about the threat to democracy implied by the attacks on the Capitol and connects the events to the broader theme over the last few years of rights under attack. It felt like 2016, to be honest, when Trump won the elections. Uh, But not just that, because like feeling that people are talking the democracy of the United States, it felt like everyone who is against of democracy attacking our rights. I mean, all rights, human rights, black people, women, gays, like white people, everyone who defends like equality in general. You know, it was, it was shocking but not surprising because, like, we've, we knew that it's, at some point it would happen. For the record, I did not feed Danny the shocked but not surprised thing. Khatare from Iran and Cindy from Germany, who you'll hear after Khatare, were both also a bit less surprised. Cindy further noted the disparity between the kid gloves treatment by law enforcement of Trumpist insurrectionists versus the heavy hand with which Black Lives Matter supporters were met this past summer. Sincerely, uh, it didn't surprise me and I didn't have a special reaction because I think it was totally expected from Trump's fans. And I remember when I heard the news, I said, His fans are just like him. Hi, my name is Cindy and I'm from Germany. When I heard about pro-Trump rioters storming the US Capitol on Wednesday, my first reaction was to shake my head. I was astonished by the incident, but at the same time I wasn't surprised at all, if that makes sense. I immediately had to think about the hypocrisy in the law enforcement response to protests, comparing it to how police met Black Lives Matter protesters last year, followed by a lot of violence and arrests. I feel like if the protesters on Wednesday were black, they would have been treated very, very differently. Speaking of the treatment of the people who stormed the Capitol, Jerry from the Philippines was surprised by how the insurrectionists had been handled by another entity. Trump himself. So after inciting all those people to rush towards the Capitol, now he's basically washing his hands out of all of it. So basically Trump is now throwing some of his supporters under a bus, and yet they remain fiercely loyal to him. It's like they're under some sort of spell. Heat from Thailand expresses sympathy over the frustration that comes with losing an election, but is similarly struck by the irrationality of those who stormed the capital and hopes the tensions will calm. I'm not talking about which side is right or wrong, because I don't know much about politics there. But what I'm talking about is violence. I know it's upsetting when someone you love or support loses the election. You guys have the right to protest, but carrying guns or using force to get what you want is something else. For me, I don't think being aggressive could solve the problem. People should be more rational to get what they want. Anyway, it is just an opinion from an outsider like me. I hope my American friends there will be safe. On a more hopeful note, although she doesn't sympathize with those who attack the capital at all. Khattare from Iran doesn't think that this event necessarily makes American democracy look quite as bad as it could. I'm against the people who, who think that um, it was embarrassing for, for America. I'm, I'm against this idea totally because I think it was another test of democracy in, in your country. Seeing normal people encroaching the capital without getting harmed. Christian from Ecuador, however, takes a more dim view, connecting the attack Trump incited against the capital to his broader negative impact on the international order. El Trump... The Trump element on the international stage can be analyzed as very harmful. We see that some economic interests, aligned with the political and ideological ones, are very dangerous for any democracy, not just the United States. So, it's not exactly subtle by now that I think this attack on the Capitol was one of the darkest moments in American history, coming at the end of an already especially dark period a straight-up violent assault on the United States and its democratic values by treasonous, lunatic backers of the worst president America has ever had the misfortune to have. I am also deeply fearful of what I assume will probably be the negative impact that this attempted putsch will have on America's role in the world. I desperately hope that Hatere is right, that this doesn't make our democracy look too bad. If enough people around the world feel the way she does about it all, Maybe America can continue to lead, as the next president likes to say, not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. But unless the political right in America either starts believing in democracy again and is willing to unite behind President Biden, or the Republicans just go the way of the wing party, I fear that that whole shining city on a hill thing is well and truly over the hill. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you're enjoying the show so far and don't want to miss an episode, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really want to do me a solid, you can like or review the podcast on one of those platforms, or share it with other folks who might want to listen to it. As always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for designing the podcast artwork, and of course, a huge thank you to Jerry, Bertha, Christian, Danny, Kateré, Cindy, and Heat for being willing to share their reactions with you all. Until the next episode, which I really hope will come sooner after this episode than this one did after the previous one, thanks for listening.